0: And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're going to have an exciting program for you today in two parts. A little later in the hour, you're going to be meeting one of the women who comprise the uh, marvelous a cappella vocal quartet, Women of the World. They very nearly represent the four corners of the world, and they're going to be coming to Carthage to perform in Siebert Chapel on Thursday evening. You'll hear from one of their members, uh, In part two of today's program. In part one, I am so excited uh, that we can talk about a marvelous play that is about to open at Carthage uh, in Warburg Auditorium performances this weekend and the following weekend. It's called A Doll's House, part two and that is an intriguing title which we will have explained uh, by uh, Herschel Kruger who is a member of the uh, theater faculty at Carthage and with him three students who are part of this production all three using this production for their senior thesis which of course is one of the most joyous experiences that any undergrad can have but actually in this case it really sounds like a great way to fulfill uh, the senior thesis requirement we have Lydia Hassel, who portrays the uh, central character of Nora. Uh, Giovanni Behena is Torvald, and uh, uh, L- LaTora Lazat Latora is the costume designer for this production, and we welcome all four of you
1: to the morning show. Thanks for Greg. Thanks for having us, Greg.
0: Great to have you here. So, Professor Kruger, uh, let's get from you uh, a word of explanation about this intriguing title, A Doll's House, Part 2. Of course, that title will seem Familiar to people who have even a passing acquaintance with the great works of theater, uh, explain what this uh, intriguing play is.
1: Well, A Part II is, um, of course, written by a different playwright. Uh, It's Lucas Nath. Um, Henrik Ibsen wrote A Doll's House in 1879, and it, it caused shockwaves and riots in some cities. It created the free theater movement across Europe because at the end of the play, Nora leaves her husband and her children and the final stage directions on the door is the door closes the door slams shut and now it's 15 years later as um lucas nath has imagined it and nora has returned home uh, a changed woman and uh, Anne marie is the uh, the nanny who had raised her and has also raised her children in her absence and she's come back um to close up some matters, and I, I don't want to give anything away, but it's it's 15 years later, and of course, over 15 years, everyone has changed a lot. Um, but what hasn't been reckoned with is um, why she left and uh, the, the fractured relationship between her and Torvald. Hmm. Say a word
0: about, although even in that brief description or summary, mm-hmm. it, you've already sort of grazed the, the answer to this question, what made Ibsen's play, A Doll's House, so tremendously shocking and controversial in its day?
1: Yeah, I think, well, a lot of his works um, and a lot of the modernists, um, whether they're painters or, or playwrights, um, they they started tackling subjects that, that were taboo. And so um, people would say he attacked institutions like marriage or the church or, you know, what other what other facets of society he saw as, as um, not really standing for what they're meant to stand for. And with, with this play, um, he saw the inequity in, in relationships and, and, and marriage and, and the, um, the constraints especially put upon women in this time period. Um, Nora felt like she was a, a doll who went from her father then to Torvald. Mm-hmm. And she and women at that time they had no rights. Um, they couldn't own property. They couldn't sign contracts. Um, their education was very limited in what, what they could, what kind of school they could go to, especially secondary school, and what kind of jobs they could hold. And and so her prospects and for her to leave um, were very limited. So you're once once you're in that marriage, unless your husband would divorce you you are stuck right so
0: I guess the heart of the matter with that first play is that uh, the way Ibsen portrays this Nora is not a monster for walking out on her her marriage and her family she is a at least relatively sympathetic figure and for at least a wide swath of the public at that time that would have been kind of a shocking scene. yeah, that, to see so openly portrayed?
1: Yes, it was um, it was very shocking, and she was seen as a villain and and um, our dramaturge had pulled together some different um, reviews over the years where uh, Dalshaus first started playing in other countries, and um, it was still very shocking and not not well received. But Nora was uh, a hero. She was courageous. She saved her husband's life. He was he was sick, and um, her father was going to sign for a loan. This is from A Doll's House, Part One, and how everything happened. And her father passed, and she signed the loan, forged his name the next day. Mm. And so, at the beginning of A Doll's House, it's it's um, Christmas Eve day. Torvald's just been made the bank manager, and Nora knows she has one payment left on this note that she's been secretly paying for years. And the the loan that she took to save her husband's life, Mm -hmm. to take him to Italy, to get him into a warm climate. And um, she's kept this secret from him. And I mean, secrets aren't aren't good in marriages or or, or relationships, but you have to understand why she held that secret. And especially with Torvald, who was so buttoned up and, and so by the rules and and such a man, you know, especially mm-hmm. in that time period that um, you know, it was unconceivable that she would do such a thing right.
0: before we turn to our students, I want to ask you a, a, a question about this this sequel, I guess we would mm-hmm. call it to Ibsen's a Adal, a doll's house. Um, first of all, when was this written, and how closely does its writing style reflect? <laughs> ibsen's original i mean yeah. if, if we were going to watch both of these plays back to back in one evening which would be a lot of theater in one yeah. sitting would it feel like in in a sense would it feel like one play or does this contemporary playwright in a sense uh write more in his own language than rather than that of ibsen
1: yeah he writes more in his own language um uh contemporary, uh, translations of, of Vidal's house have, have become a little less formal, but they're, they're mm. still a little more, more formal. And, um, Lucas Nath is, um, uh, really works to cap- capture the essence of speech. So there's, there's some fragmented language and overlapping, and there's all these ellipses that he puts in. And so each character has to figure out, what am I doing during this ellipse? And sometimes he'll have three or four, or he'll have... You know, half a page to a full page, and and so it's all this nonverbal communication and the things that we do when we don't necessarily say words, but we're still communicating. He also uses uh, like, hey and nope, and there were times mm. in rehearsal I was like, did he really write that? Oh yeah, that's that's a word. Um yeah, you know things like that. Does so he say not, um yeah? That's not, that's yeah. not Giovanni being yeah.
0: uh, dopey. It's, no, it's um, no. Being what, what's and, and, in this script and curse
1: words as well. So wow. it's. You know, it's it's very unlike um, Ibsen. The flavor of it, though, the 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 power and the dynamics of the relationships are just as clearly written and vivid, as well as the design and the the time period. Mm-hmm. And um, Martin McClendon, who who did the set, and and uh, um, Will Newcomb, who did the lighting, really helped create the world and the moods that that we live in. And of course, Latora who did our our period costumes, um, you could look at them back to back and know that they're the same world, mm-hmm. but the language and uh, is different. that's probably what counts the most.
0: For those of you just joining us, I have four guests uh, for part one of today's morning show. Herschel Kruger, we've been hearing from, from the theater faculty at Carthage and three students are with him, three seniors, uh, Lydia Hassel and, uh, Giovanni Bahena, who are both in the cast of A Doll's House, part two, and, uh, Latora Lazat, who is the costume designer, and all three of them uh, for their senior thesis are uh, are involved in A Doll's House Part 2, which opens this weekend and runs the following weekend as well. So um, I'm curious, uh, I guess from all of you, I think particularly from the two actors, uh, what was your acquaintance with this Ibsen original and with this sequel to it before you even began working on this, and what what sorts of a uh, sense of anticipation and or intimidation did you feel as you began this project?
2: Uh, well, my first um, interaction with the original play was in my acting two class. Where we actually did scenes from it, and I played Nora at one point, um, but that was a very you know preliminary basic reading of the script. Um, and then later on my sophomore year, I did a research paper on Ibsen. Mm. so I reread it for that purpose and then I reread it again for this role, which of course is an enormous undertaking because Nora is just such and influential character not only in the theater world but the f- uh, feminine world mm. you know she is a big role model for women at the time because her breakthrough was just incredible
0: right and probably something that a lot of women longed for mm-hmm. but uh, uh, most women uh, for one reason or another either could not bring themselves to make that move or or it was simply impossible for them but Nora manages to do what is in a sense seemingly impossible. Yes. <laughs> so you call her a, a hero as well, in a sense. It sounds like it sounds like you have a real affinity for her or appreciation for who she was.
2: Yes, I do, and that's definitely something as an actor you have to do. You have to be able to fight for your character, even if you know they're not the most um, morally correct person. But I agree with a lot of what Nora says, especially about marriage and that you know a woman doesn't have to get married she can have a career. She can choose to have children or she can choose to not have children. I think the idea is that women should have the same rights as men. They should have as much freedom as men. And that's why I really side with Nora.
0: Right, and the fact that Ibsen was so forthright about that Mm -hmm. back in his day is pretty remarkable. How about you, uh, Giovanni Behena? You play Torvald, who was Nora's husband. My
3: first introductions have all been through classes and some uh, light sort of studying and reading, and it wasn't until it was announced that I really went through in-depth, and I watched different performances, and I reread through the script, and then I read through the script that was available. And it first, it read is a really dark sequel. I was like, oh, this is very emotional. And then I saw clips from the production and interviews with Lucas Nathan. I realized, oh, there's a lot more room for comedy and levity in this production as well. And then the thing that really stuck out to me in both productions is what Nora, how Nora talks about different relationships. Mm -hmm. And I, what led me to my research is I was listening to a podcast with a psychoanalyst, Esther Perel, and she has a sort of radical view on love, relationships, and affairs, which isn't really what the show itself is about, but is a big topic that Nora brings up in Mm. uh, one of her opening scenes. Um, And so what I realized in doing research is that the reason Nora left was because she wasn't treated as an intellectual equal. There was not a lot of intellectual or emotional freedom in um, their relationship. So it was really interesting uh, to look into how this um, one uh, sort of life coach is telling people how to have a good relationship, how to bring um, a new life force to a relationship, and how it is presented in how this. Other relationship is presented with that lack of life force. Mm. So one of the things that it's been really fun working on is mending the old relationship and possibly finding a new one Mm. in the second part. But I sha not say whether or not we did or didn't. That's
0: right. We will leave that for for the audience to to experience. Um, One of the things I talked about with uh, Professor Kruger is you... (laughs) <laughs> all heard, of course, was uh, the matter of language and the fact that this sequel to Ibsen's original play uh, is written in uh, fairly contemporary language, certainly contemporary compared to Ibsen. What is that like for you as actors? And then, uh, Latora, I'm about to ask you kind of the same question in terms of the role that costumes play in placing us in this time, in this period, given that it sounds like the language could potentially kind of take us out of the period that this play is set. What kind of challenge has that been for you as as actors uh, in terms of dwelling in one period but having language that is from another? Has that felt strange?
2: I actually didn't find it as a challenge, interestingly enough. Um, some, the script is just so carefully written. Lucas Nath is just an incredible playwright. He really pays attention to each word that he puts in the play. And even at the beginning of the script, there is um, like a rule book of how to read the script because mm. there's ellipses where those are pauses, but they should, there should be action in these pauses. And there's slashes where characters can cut off another character. Um, and it really helps to build the forward momentum that you don't even really have to think about how this isn't how they used to talk because it just feels so natural, mm. the way that it's written. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of alliteration that we have played with and just different um, literary techniques that Lucas Nath has um, used in his writing that we have paid atten- attention to to make our acting more specific.
0: Wow. that your experience also, Giovanni?
2: Uh,
3: yeah, it it's been... Really easy, actually, working with um, the language of this script because it's so similar to natural speech. It's written in such a way that it truthfully just rolls um, off of the tongue. It sits in the body. And it, it's written in such a way that uh, it doesn't take a lot of work to get to the emotional truth of it hmm. because Nate did a really good job of writing the emotional truth on the page that it's just a little bit of tweaking per performance really. Right.
1: Yeah. So that I was just going to say structurally, also he has a few other things where he has short lines, and then he has spaces between the lines, and and a lot of times he doesn't put in punctuation. Mm. And even though it's a question, well, what is our choice? Are we going to make it a statement or a question? And then there's no punctuation, but the line is like, "What do you think about this?" You know. <laughs> Little better than that, but one of the things we have found in that we saw in the Broadway production is that the language also informs the physicality of each of the characters. So the characters don't always have to sit up exactly straight, even though they're corseted. And for the women and the men, you know, Giovanni is is pretty buttoned up, and he he wears you know this beautiful costume that Latour designed in a cravat and this this frock coat and he's very professional but the language lends itself for them to to be a little more relaxed at times on stage and for them to to kind of slump a little or um, you know not always be this you know in this rigid period Hmm.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I think when I heard you say that this language is kind of contemporary, for some reason the first thing I thought of is certain things you see on television, like mm-hmm. the television version of Hercules or something, where it's supposedly these people living in ancient times, but they're talking to each other like we talk. Mm-hmm. And that just seems like a really casual, careless choice mm-hmm. in whoever has written that script. Or maybe it's a very uh, very deliberate Commercially driven choice to because uh, you have mm-hmm. little kids watching it and they don't want to listen to a lot of these and thous or whatever. Yeah. But it sounds like this is not that at all. This is a, an incredibly meticulous script and very mm-hmm. true to the heart of the story, yeah, it, which is really what what matters.
1: Yeah, it still captures their essence and these are multi dimensional characters. They're very sophisticated, uh, and and so it's even as it might be in a little more informal. It, it's they're still you know, I'm blessed with a really talented cast who's who's done their work, and mm. so um, the the language is still is still pretty challenging. But, right, but that speaks to to their development and training over over the years and the experience they bring in. So very good.
0: Let's hear from Latora Lazat finally, uh, who is the costume designer for this production, and uh, I have a feeling, and uh, more than one person in this interview already has touched on the fact that the costumes. Matter a tremendous amount in terms yes. of, of, uh, of of presenting something really truthful and rich. Uh, tell us about the the interesting challenges that you you faced in in costuming this this uh, production and these these actors.
4: Well, I think especially this play is set very specifically in 1894, which is this transition period from Victorian to Edwardian fashions and Mm. it's a lot harder to try and peg this exact moment and what these characters are wearing because all of the styles of that day are all changing. Mm. So it's not the same as knowing the 20s have the flapper girls and all the beautiful glitzy dresses. This is sort of like we're transitioning from bustle period into no bustle. Mm. So
0: so a given person living at this time might have worn this or might have worn that? Correct. It's hard to say.
4: Yes. So I think the next focus was going in and looking at the characters and who they are and the script helps a lot to place these people in this somewhat modern terms of speech in a way to help connect to the audience better and I appreciated it a lot because I always tend to look at a character and decide what they would wear nowadays and what statement pieces they would wear in order to help figure out exactly who these people are and then translate like a stereotypical biker guy who wears a leather jacket would wear some sort of fancy doublet back in the 1700s or that sort of thing of just trying to figure out what they wear exactly in this moment. And, for example, Nora is... A very wealthy very accomplished woman who comes home and so her costume portrays the success she's had in her life and she's ahead of the fashion because she's on that peak of popularity in her job and everything she's doing whereas Anne Marie the nanny sort of tends to stay back in a traditional period of early eighteen hundreds where she's used to being a part of before this whole Hmm. second part has gone down and keeping her in a backdated period to help keep her aged but also lend toward her like love for tradition and trying to stay traditional
0: hmm. fascinating so in other words when we look at the stage and look at these four characters mm-hmm. we will see with our own eyes what you were just talking about it's yes. not like you've chosen one or the other. We mm-hmm. see both, which, which yes. really helps us understand this moment of transition in more ways exactly. than one. And mm-hmm. of course, more is transitioning than just bustles or no bustles. I mean, yeah. uh, every facet of, of life is exactly. being transformed in this moment. Wow. And I imagine you have been uh, collaborating not only with uh, Herschel Kruger, but also with Kim Instanus, who of course heads uh, up costumes at Carthage. What yes. has that experience been like?
4: Well, this is the second show I've designed for Carthage and the first one took place last year and I had the privilege of also designing it with Herschel him being the director for both shows. And Kim is my costume advisor, so anytime I take the role of a designer, it's my design gets approved through her before we go on to everything as part of the educational process. But the both of them have been extremely wonderful, both times I've worked with them and They both give me enough design freedom to allow me to show who I am through my designs with also keeping me reeled back and focusing on what's most important in these costumes. But especially with this show, the cast is super small. We're very intimate. I'm close to a lot of them with personal lives. And I think we all really help each other figure out what this show is. Mm.
0: What a great... Rich experience that is. I mean even beyond just the actual uh, acting of it. So it's clear what your role has been uh, in terms of your senior thesis and so on. For our two actors, what does it mean to not just be in a play but for this to be your senior thesis? Uh, what, What do you have to do beyond just the learning of the lines and the presentation of your roles?
2: Yeah, so um, the senior thesis, we're both theater performance majors, so our thesis was going to be a performance thesis, and that is the ultimate product of all of our training. So we take everything that we've learned from our acting, our voice classes, um, and we apply that to this role. We also apply our script analysis um, techniques because we go through the script and figure out what the playwright is saying. We figure out our characters' objectives, our tactics, our actions, how we're going to affect our scene partners. Mm. And we also do the research portion of it. So this play, in a way, was easy to do research for since there is a part one. Mm, Right. (laughs) Um, but, and that will culminate in a research paper where we will do a character analysis of our character and then um, uh, sh- share our research of the period and um, the topics of the play.
0: Excellent. Anything to add, Giovanni? That sounds like a nice long list. I <laughs> mean, it's
3: been really fun doing a lot of research. I've focused mine um, starting with love and relationships, again, with the work of Esther Perel, but I've also dabbled in some research with Judith Butler's uh, gender as a performance theory and mm-hmm. to see how Torvald is putting on his own sort of character with Nora and thus expecting her to put on a character based off of uh, what is expected mm-hmm. of him as a man, as um, as a husband, as a, a very stand-up lawyer and then manager of a banker. So it's been really fun to um, dive into these uh, sort of broad and uh, intense topics and apply them to this production.
0: Yeah, it sounds amazing. And what a thrilling opportunity for us to uh, revisit these memorable characters in this context of this intriguing sequel. And what a curious thing that this doesn't happen more. I suppose it is intimidating Mm -hmm. for a potential playwright to take a masterpiece and then be, in a sense, audacious enough and Mm -hmm. daring enough to craft a sequel to it and yet yeah. it seems like uh the kind of opportunity that i should think a lot of playwrights would find irresistible but we yeah, don't see I mean, this there's
1: much. there's material out there and you see you know the sequels to movies that are, are done and the remake of movies and and the adaptation of novels etc so um it's not that it's that original of a thought it's it's just uh original to think about i'm gonna write the ending to a Doll's house part two and maybe down the road somebody will do that with Barry child or something like that so uh we'll we'll wait and see wow. one one of the things i wanted to bring up um we were talking about the, a- the actor's work and and what goes into the thesis, Latour is being a little humble about the amount of work that goes into her (laughs) costumes, because there isn't a strip mall in Kenosha that's like the Doll's House Part 2 store, (laughs) where you could run in and like, I need a size 12, and I need, you know, Mm. I need, I have a big man for Torvald, he's probably a 50 long, and you just, so they're building all of these costumes from scratch, so, Mm. so designing the costumes, the renderings, all the measurements, then going out and finding the fabrics, and, and. Even finding decent fabric stores in in Kenosha, so they're in. The, they've made a few trips to Chicago oh, and sure. <laughs> um, um, Milwaukee, but I, I think um, this was Latour's first time tailoring, and they they built Torvald's suit. So most of the time, we we'll build mm. women's. Mm. Where and then we'll rent stuff for men. So you you can rent some of these, but it's it's really exciting. I think we should hear her talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> right. No,
0: it sounds exciting. Although we only have a minute or so, but uh, right. it's been a wonderful undertaking for you. It sounds like.
4: yes. I had to do all of the fabric shopping. I imagined what these people wore and figured out what color palette I wanted them in, and then just sort of browsed the fabrics to find what spoke to me about it. But for the thesis, I have to do a costume build as well as the design so Mm. because there are only four characters and there are a decent amount of people who work in our costume shop we decided that walking out with experience in tailoring would be super helpful especially because we don't normally do that right so i have built giovanni's pants vest and frock coat all out of the same wool but it's been a lot of work putting that together It's my first time experience or experiencing tailoring. And Kim hasn't done that at Carthage in the full time that she's been here. So wow. it's been quite an undertaking for Kim and our costume shop manager, Nicole, as well, all wow. trying to figure out exactly. How everything goes together.
0: Well, we get to see your beautiful handiwork on the stage of Warburg yes. Auditorium. It's one more reason to be excited mm-hmm. to see A Doll's House Part Two. If people want tickets, what do they do?
1: Call uh, the box office 262-551-6661, or they could email at the Ensemble and Events Office, OEE at Carthage.edu, Office of Ensemble and Events, 262 551 Six, 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 one.
0: Fantastic. Herschel Krueger from the theater faculty, Lydia Hassel, Giovanni Behena, uh, Letora Lezotte, all involved in Adolf <laughs> House, part two. Thank you so much for being a part of the morning show
1: today. Thanks, for Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. In part two of today's morning show, we're going to preview for you what promises to be an exciting and unique concert happening Thursday evening, October 3rd, 7.30 p.m. at Siebert Chapel on the campus of Carthage College an all-female international a cappella quartet called Women of the World, who perform original and traditional folk music in 28 languages. They are an amazing group in many, many ways. You're about to hear an interview which WGTD's own Troy McDonald recorded with one of their members, Georgia Renosto. First, let's sample a little bit of their exciting singing. <laughs>
5: I do they do 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 do
1: do 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 do
6: do 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 do
5: do do do
1: do 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 the do
3: the by. And let's go walking. Walking down the street. Walking.
6: Walking down the street.
0: That's women of the world who perform Thursday night at Carthage College. Now, Troy McDonald's interview with Georgia Lenosto.
5: This is such a great, unique concept. How did the four of you come together?
6: Well, we all met at Berklee College of Music uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, About uh, 10, 12 years ago, we were all in school together at different times. And Ayumi Ueda, uh, the Japanese member and founder of Women of the World, had this great idea of bringing people of the world together to sing for peace. And uh, she contacted me and she asked me, would you like to be part of this project? And I immediately said, yes.
5: And did you have any reservations at that point? Because you were in college, right? I mean, you're in school. We're at you know, still learning. So did you have any hesitations? What was going through your mind when you got that offer?
6: (laughs) No, I didn't have any hesitation and I will tell you why. So I am a Buddhist practitioner since 20 years now and I was practicing, I was chanting um, to just find the right fit for my music career, and I always loved vocal music, even in Italy. I'm originally from Torino, Italy, so I came to the United States to study at Berkeley. And uh, so I was really trying to understand how to merge my faith, my practice, and my daily life, which is a professional career in music. And Ayumi came along, and when she said that she wanted to sing for peace, of course, all religions, they want peace and and buddhism wants peace more than anything else so she was the answer to my prayers for sure
5: Hmm. that's interesting you say that because so many people search and that's why i think we're going through what we're going through right in the world right now is everyone is searching for that marriage something that connects them from their spiritual side to the reality and so it is how much of a blessing has it been for you to be able to have both of those things in your work life and doing what you love
6: well uh, i always say that uh, i have an immense depth of gratitude towards ayumi because she was really the answer to my prayers and we with all the concerts that we do all around the world and for all the educational outreaches that we do and uh, we we literally, I know for sure, because we have comments online and letters that arrive, that we are really touching in a profoundly, in a profound way, uh, the soul of these young people. And that that's our mission, you know, to just what they see on stage. Because when you see us on stage, you see four people, <clears throat> they are completely different in the outlook starting with that. So even the color of our skin. And we are singing in harmony. And that's, that is the world that we want to see. Might be cheesy to say, but sincerely, it is the world that we want to see.
5: No, I, I don't think that's cheesy at all. And anyone who thinks that <laughs> we should not pay any attention to or hope, pray <laughs> that they get uh, a reality check. <laughs> so you talked about it. Explain why it was so important, as you mentioned, there are four uniquely uh, positioned women in this group from different backgrounds. Talk about the backgrounds in the group and why that's so important. Uh,
6: The backgrounds in the group are absolutely different. (laughs) (laughs) So for upbringing, religion, um, and anything, even food, even daily life, you know, we have to... When we tour, we have—I don't want to say the word "adjust" to each other because we we profoundly respect each other. Although we fight, I might say that we fight. <laughs> 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 it's not, you know, we really understood that uh, peace is not lack of conflict; it's the resolution of the conflict. So
5: mm. even that's when a really quit. great point. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had an uh-huh. aha moment. That's brilliant.
6: We, 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 found, we found this definition, and we really think that it works for women of the world. If you are at one of our rehearsals or meeting or business meeting, you'll see that this is not, it's not so peaceful. <laughs> it's very respectful. We really respect each other profoundly. Um, and and we, we also have gratitude the word each other, because we really, we, it, I can say that we have special, a, a special role in Women of the World, every every one of us, and then when we come up on stage, that's, that's, there's nothing else. There's just our voices that sing together. So everything is different, or was different, let's say, and then we came together and we embraced this mission, and we absolutely love it.
5: And you guys represent four different parts of the globe
6: correct yes, so, so what are those parts Ayumi, Yes, so Ayumi Ueda, um, she's Japanese from Tokyo, and uh, from tokyo tokyo, and her mom is is from Hiroshima and um so she has you know it's it's a big legacy being from there because of what happened in world war 2 and she really takes peace uh, very very seriously um i am from italy um from torino um and i was a very late student um at berkeley then we have Annette Philippa she's from India and then we have Deborah her uh, parents are uh, came from Haiti to United States she's the first generation born in US
5: mm, wow and so you, you see what's going on in the world immense conflict polarization you said the response has been positive because you are exactly the opposite right of what's going on in the world for browed proud, bold women who are <laughs> unifying themselves for peace, what has the response been? You said that young people have really taken to it. Has there been pushback?
6: The the young people, well, in I think that so far in our tour, I, will, I don't exaggerate if I tell you that we met young kids, and what I'm telling you, young people, uh, like 3 years old till 18 uh we probably met between 12,000 and 15,000 kids because we did lots of residencies all around the world and there was this letter of this 13 years old um we had the outreach in the morning and at night time she came to the concert with she invited her mom or aunt and all the family And then she came up on stage, and she um, gave us a letter. And the letter said, you inspired a 13-year-old to do something. I don't know yet what it is, but I will do it. And I will never forget those words.
5: Mm, Wow. And you really connect with young people, especially on Instagram. You guys have something called Warm Up Wednesdays.
6: Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Explain that. We do well. Um, you know, you know, music is not anymore only about music. As you know, you know, it, music is business. It always has been. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you, you, you. There is a way to connect with people not only through song, and we are so diverse. We love eating, also, so we have a, a eating, um, sorry, a cooking series on Facebook, for instance. And then we started this Warm Up Wednesday. So we realized that people around the world they really need some, uh, some some inspiration, even to understand what to do when they practice. So we just started that as, um, as a little, I don't want to say a, a joke, but you know, said, well, this is what we do when we practice and people really connect to the daily life of an artist. So if you, if you go uh, expose what you do in your daily life, they're even more interested. And, and then people just loved it. So we are continuing the series and we'll see I, if, you, if you saw some of our posts. We are not always serious, and we make mistakes we We are not perfect at all and warm up Wednesdays is just something that people starting to love, and they are telling us we I'm including this in my routine, so <clears throat> we are extremely happy that that is going very well.
5: Women of the world music on instagram that's their uh, their tag name. Handle. Handle, yeah. yeah so you can go follow, <laughs> follow that. I should know that I'm 27. I have Instagram. Right? <laughs> I just never call it a handle. But you're right, it is called a handle. Uh, what usually unfolds at your concerts? How does it take place?
6: We usually uh, start with uh, a wide array of music from our countries. Um, so we showcase um, our, you know, uh, some songs from our country. We do also audience participation. We love to do audience participation. Usually, audiences they sing with us conical, which is the rhythmic sulfage, in the Indian rhythmic sulfage. Uh We demonstrate. They sing back. Um, then we we sometimes do a French song where they can harmonize with us. We sometimes do an improvisation. Um, we can. We also finish with some um african songs. Uh, Africa is a big continent, so I don't want to reveal too much, but um at the end of the concert, you usually dance with us and then we close with a prayer that we teach. So as a, you know, as a gratitude towards the space, the people and the universe.
5: Absolutely incredible. <laughs> There's going to be local students participating, you are performing this Thursday night, October 3rd, 7.30, at the Siebert Chapel at Carthage. So you have traveled. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you travel all around the world, performing for, you know, at colleges, for young people. What is it like living on the road, traveling all over the
6: world? Well, uh, it is beautiful, uh, and it is very really tiring at the same time. When you have a wake-up call around 5 or 6 a.m., and then you have to have breakfast very fast, and then you have to take a car and bring it to the airport and jump on two planes and take another car and do sound check at 3.30 four hours away from where you were at 6 a.m. It can be extremely tiring. The reward is that, uh, of course, we meet such wonderful people. And we had, like, incredible experiences all around the world. In Asia, for instance, it's like the place where they treat you like princess.
1: Mm. And it's
6: such a <laughs> it's beautiful. When you go there, people bring you flowers and sweets, And presents on top of the ticket that they they buy to, you know, to come to the concert. And in Germany, we had some incredible audience participation, some incredible food. We really foodies, like we love to eat. (laughs) So for us, like after the concert to hang out with the people and eat and, and greet them. And it's, it's really, really, really a pleasure. It is very tiring. We tour next year. It will be crazy, crazy. So we, even, we will be on a tour bus for two and a half months. We will go to Europe for a month. We'll go back to Japan for three weeks. And then we start this Big collaboration with a group that is called Take Six. Oh yeah, the huge audience group. Does right, <laughs> Yes, I don't know if your audience know about Take Six. Take Six, but if they don't know, they, they
5: might better well learn check it
6: out. They are <laughs> ten times Grammy <laughs> winning <laughs> folks, and they are an incredible group with thirty plus year of legacy in the in the vocals performance. And we are going to do a double bill. So it will be a very, like, it's a big year for women of the world. It will be beautiful and tiring at the same time.
5: So let's talk about how you create the vocal arrangements, because I was watching uh, some of your stuff on, on YouTube and on your website. And these are very intricate, very, I'd say, difficult <laughs> things to perform especially yes uh, i mean <laughs> yeah,
6: that's the right word
5: <laughs> I mean, and let's be honest i mean you have audience participation but not everyone can sing okay not everyone can do it so how do you build your arrangements and then find a place for people to even jump in and participate well
6: we got inspired uh um, from a very incredible from an incredible artist that we adore and uh, sometimes we were doing audience participation in a very low level, like meaning two notes or some claps. And then she told us, never underestimate the people that you have in front of you. They will be able to do it. So, you know, we came up with other things and complicated things and people just left us in awe. <laughs> we were wow. like, wow! What's going on? So <laughs> Sometimes we, we make a joke, like, can we bring you with us on tour because you are singing so beautifully. So never underestimate the people in front of you and actually they can sing, they can clap, they can, they have rhythm inside of them. Sometimes you have just to look for it. <laughs> it just mm. isn't some (laughs) But but it is there. And the music that we perform, there are different levels. Not all the music is difficult. Some of the music is really extremely difficult. The most difficult thing that we do, uh, in our opinion, is that we touch so many styles and and languages. Right now we sing in 37 languages. Our repertoire spans in 37 languages. So it is... It is so difficult to grasp the right um, nuances, even with the vocal technique and with the right words, the pronunciation. And so that's the most difficult thing that we do because you switch, you literally switch your technique. Your vocal fold needs to fit in a different way. Your resonance in your skull needs to be in a different way. It's, it's That is the most difficult part.
5: Hmm. We're coming to a close here for this, but I wanted to ask you one last question. If you could go back and tell the Georgia who is just starting out in women of music, um, women of the world, if you could tell her anything, what would you say to her?
6: Never give up. It's, it is what I say to myself every day. Never give up. Never give up and always look up. Never look down. I know exactly where I want to go with women of the world. And I really will try to achieve all my dreams and all my goals.
5: Absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Georgia Renasto, a part of the wonderful quartet women of the world performing this thursday october 3rd at seven thirty at siebert chapel at carthage thank you so much for joining us
6: thank you so much have a wonderful day everybody
0: that was wgtd's own troy mcdonald and i thank him for that interview with georgia Renosto. if you would like information about purchasing tickets for thursday night's concert by women of the world you can go to www.carthage.edu slash tickets Or you can call the box office, and their phone number is 262-551-6661. 262-551-6661. They are open between noon and 5. And again, Women of the World perform this Thursday evening.
4: And this is a song of celebration from Kenya called Mwana